clearly the presentation by Escudier at the 2007 ASCA meeting of initial findings of the combination of interferon and bevacizumab was a major new data set that now affects the treatment algorithm. I met with Dr. Robert Amato, who commented on what we know right now about bevacizumab and renal cell cancer. The initial data from Yang that came out in the New England Journal showed some progression-free survival relative to placebo, low dose, which then started putting it together in combinations with cytokines while these targeted agents were being established and developed. So the first combination that we saw presented by Bernard Escudier at ASCO with interferon and bevacizumab versus interferon showed two important points. Showed the progression-free survival interval relative to interferon. That was statistically significant. And also tumor responses that were statistically significant. So now we have a combination with a cytokine, interferon, with bevacizumab showing comparable activity to these oral TKIs. But the difficulty is, ironically, neither drug is truly approved by the FDA in the United States. So how that combination will be viewed is difficult. For my own personal, we have a hard time getting third-party payers for bevacizumab. Sort of putting aside cost and reimbursement issues, focusing purely on sort of risk-benefit ratios in a more pure sense, right now with the data that we have, what's your take on sort of the risk-benefit ratio in the first-line setting for sunitinib versus Bev interferon versus maybe Bev alone? Fair question. Well, let's break it down. You've got sunitinibid side effects. The predominant side effect is the fatigue, and they have the built-in break. You know, so it's the four-week, two-week schedule, and then it's got the additional side effects from the skin reactions to the gastrointestinal reactions, and occasionally you'll get the hematologic profile where you see the decreased in counts and you need the two-week rest period. Nexavar, the clear issue there is going to be the skin reactions associated with the hand-foot syndrome, which can be troublesome if it's significant for a patient. With both of those drugs, if you begin manipulating dose by lowering dose to adjust for side effect toxicity, you tend to lose efficacy. So you've really got to maintain it at the doses that are approved. Bevacizumab is a single agent, when you look at a side effect profile, is more manageable, clearly. You're dealing with hypertension and proteinuria, which are more manageable, and the guidelines are easy to follow for a community oncologist. When you're adding interferon with bevacizumab, you're still seeing the similar side effect profile. So if one's looking just from a tolerability standpoint, it would be a fair statement to make, interferon bevacizumab is better tolerated than the oral TKIs. And then it becomes a reimbursement question. What about efficacy? Again, efficacy is, you know, it's unfair to say one is better than the other when you're not doing head-to-head trials, and you know that. But if you just compare across the board, they're all relatively similar. You're looking at sunitinibid from phase 2 data, phase 3 data, anywhere from 30 to 40% activity with a stability portion as well. And looking at Nexavar, somewhere between 5 and 10%, but again, that overwhelming stability portion. And if you're on bevacizumab, you're looking at about a 30% response rate, tumor response rate, and again, with another stability fraction. If you just simply look at progression-free survival, they're all between 5 and 10 months. So they're all relatively overlapped, in my opinion, there. How do you approach second-line therapy, assuming you started with sunitinib? Good question. There's data already suggesting that another TKI, for example, sunitinib and is going to Nexavar, isn't going to be as intriguing. So then do you look at 
interferon avastin as an alternative? Do you look at the mTOR inhibitor and you look at torosils as an alternative? From my standpoint, because of the efforts we've done with another mTOR inhibitor, RAD, RAD001, where we're actually developed it as second-line therapy, and it's in phase three study right now for sunitinibid and or nexavar failures. So I would look at it as the mTOR agent, the one approved right now, Toracel, being the drug of choice for a TKI failure, actually. What's the difference in mechanism of action of the RAD versus Temsorolinus? Similar. They're both mTOR inhibitors. Any pharmacologic or side effects? The advantage to RAD is it's an oral agent as opposed to Temsorolimus being the IV agent once a week. What about the patient with a poor prognosis? And a lot of people are thinking about Temsorolinus in that situation. That's where it was tested. Can you talk a little bit about what we know about it in that situation as well as what you just talked about, which is in the more favorable patients? Right. You're correct. Where it was studied in a number of patients was in that poor prognostic group. So one can extrapolate if there's activity in the poor prognostic group associated with progression-free survival interval relative to the interferon arm or the interferon timsorolimus arm, which there was, an overall survival benefit, and some tumor responses. And again, overlapping tumor responses to Nexavar on the low end when you compare to sutinitinibid or interferon and but still within an overlap. One extrapolates then if you see activity in this poor risk group, then since you're going to see it in an intermediate and a good risk group. So then it goes to your earlier question, toxicity profile. And you know, ironically, the toxicity profiles with this agent are very similar. You're getting dermatitis issues, mouth sore issues, so it's a predominant skin type of agent. But they're all reversible and manageable. So you throw in another agent with activity, I could see physicians easily using it as first-line drug in good intermediate and poor-risk patients because of the activity generated and established in a poor-risk setting. What about sort of the other side, which is sunitinib or serafinib, favorable risk, poor risk? What do we know about that? You know, the difficulty with those two drugs is they've been pretty much exclusively studied in the good and intermediate. So you're dealing with good performance status patients who can handle the fatigue associated with each agent, especially sunitinibid. If you're taking a poor risk patient, historically a poor performance status, fatigued already just from the tumor burden, and you're adding additional fatigue, I would see physicians staying away from a drug like sunitinibid and gravitating to the Turacel. Or Nexavar, which has that more manageable hand-foot syndrome if you play with the dose, or push them through the dose and they end up over time with Nexavar. One of the intriguing things with that agent is the longer an individual is on the drug, the side effects become more tolerable and less aggressive. You mentioned serafinib as an alternative after patients have received sunitinib. What do we know about efficacy in that situation? It's about 10% or less efficacy and a little bit more stability, but for a short period of time, less than five months. So it's not the data of single-agent serafinib in cytokine failures. It's actually less. Can you talk about the presentation you did at ASCO looking at dose escalation of serafinib? Sure. We started that in 2005 of December, so it's approaching its second year now. We initially treated 44 patients, and it was taking what we felt when we designed the trial, low dose or the FDA approval dose of serafinib, and that there was some nice phase one data that suggested that at higher doses, one would see more activity. 
also hypothesizing you might get more of a RAS kinase inhibition at higher doses. So we wrote the trial for clear cell component patients and saw a 20% response rate of 44 patients. Nine of 44 patients had a complete response, and another 16 had a partial response. So we reported 56% of the individuals had objective responses, and the average response or progression-free survival median was 12 months, which, again, it's not a head-to-head trial with what we've discussed previously, but suggests we now have a complete response rate population and partial response rate population similar to what we know of already by simply increasing the dose. Do you think that that's a strategy that's reasonable to implement right now in a non-protocol setting? No, not in the United States because of third party, again. But I think it's a strategy. We're confirming the data now. We've added another 30 patients. We're more than halfway done with recruitment. Three other institutions geographically selected colleagues in California, New Jersey, and Nebraska, so components of the United States confirming. And what I would like personally to see happen is take that data, we'll have more than 120 patient population, and really present it to the Food and Drug Administration. And I think the way it can be changed is in the package insert for those patients who tolerate the escalated doses strategy should have that opportunity. Because again, if the data gets confirmed by our institution as well as the three other colleagues. That's really a fascinating data set. Were you surprised at it? shocked <laughs> to be quite I frank. imagine so. Yeah, the data is, and it's all the complete responsers are approaching 15 to 24 months now, maintaining that level of dose. Any idea about maybe specifically what might be going on here? The new trial, the 30-patient additional trial, we're looking at tissue markers and pharmacokinetics to answer those questions. So I don't have those answers at present. Tune in for next ASCO, and we'll have those answers. Any speculations? We must be blocking additional pathways at that level of dose. has to be more overlapping pathways that we're inhibiting because we're not seeing that escape mechanism as long as individuals stay on the 1,200 or 1,600 milligrams level. Any speculation about what pathways may be involved? Maybe we're blocking more of the VEGF 1, 2, and 3 pathways more robustly. The PGF beta alpha pathways, the mTOR pathway may be getting some blockade would surprise me. We're hearing a lot more, and again, multiple tumors about targeting different pathways simultaneously, vertical targeting, et cetera. You're right now running a trial looking at RAD001 plus serafinib. How do you know? You, talk, huh? <laughs> you know a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, really interesting. All kinds of combinations you can imagine in this situation. Can you talk a little bit about your study as well as some of the other studies right now looking at combinations of biologics? Sure. Let's start with some of the more mature studies that we've seen actual, some abstract data. The obvious studies right now that I see appealing and attractive is looking at the tyrosine kinase inhibitors with Avastin. I think that's an interesting field, but as we've seen in the phase one, a difficult task because of the hypertension associated with combining these drugs. And we've seen the investigators, good investigators, have to constantly change the dose level of one or the other agent, where they try to move the Avastin up and they get stuck with hypertension. They decrease it and try to move the TKI, whether it's inhibit or serafinibit, and they get stuck with hypertension. But they're seeing activity. So the adverse effect profile, adding in the skin and the other various side effects that we know of, are making it difficult. 
So now you're seeing Toracel and Toracel being combined in the same fashion, sunitinibid or serafinibid, that we're doing with RAD. I think combining the mTOR pathway, obviously, with a TKI pathway, to me, makes the most sense because you're combining the two predominant pathways in a clear cell patient. So that was why we immediately took our RAD program, our serafinibid program, and phase one. We're 12 patients into it right now. We're beginning to start our third cohort. We have six patients at the first cohort and six patients at second cohort, which is at standard dose FDA approval Nexavar. The RAD was 2.5 milligrams, now 5 milligrams, and we're going to take a jump to 10 milligrams on RAD, which is our standard single-agent dose. The data early, we're seeing toxicities as one would expect. The hand-foot syndrome from serafinibid that peaks and resolves and peaks and resolves as they're on it, so they're able to tolerate that dose. And at present, we haven't seen a lot of the mTOR side effects, occasionally a mouth sore, but nothing that would be dose-limiting at present. So it's allowing us to sort of move up. All the side effects appear to be around Nexavar and similar Nexavar side effects, not worse. So we're encouraged. Too early to speak about efficacy being in the phase one and just initiating it towards two months after ASCO. Do you have any feeling in terms of sort of the inherent anti-tumor efficacy or overall therapeutic efficacy of sunitinib versus serafinib? Sometimes I wonder if like how dosings and schedules are determined and trials are done, that maybe that ends up being more of an issue in terms of the results we see as opposed to the inherent activities of the drug. Do you have any feeling about these two drugs? Well, I do. My gut feeling feeling is if you look at how sunitinibid was developed and established, and so now we look at the 50-milligram schedule, four weeks and two weeks off, we recognize if you go to 75, you don't see additional activity. If you go down to 37.5 at that schedule, you see less activity. If we go 37.5 without an interruption, constant dosing, you see less activity. Now, when I say less, it still overlaps with the actual four-week, two-week data, but by percentage, just absolute percentages, it's less. So by manipulating sunitinibid, you're not seeing the same activity that the two phase two trials produced, as well as the phase three, either going up or down. With Nexavar, in our trial, what we spoke on earlier, by escalating the dose. So their strategy was at a lower dose, reducing adverse events, but seeing potentially less activity, more stability. What we've taken is taking their dose, increasing it twofold, and now we're seeing equivalent activity to sunitinibid with complete responses with a reversible, manageable toxicity profile, adverse event profile. So, again, I agree with your statement. How a drug gets studied and approved may not be the best way it needs to be used in an oncology setting eventually. Of course, we have to kind of go with what we've got, so that's what we have at this point. What about sunitinib and the thyroid? Oh, decreased hypothyroidism associated with it? We see that with both studies. Our dose escalated. It's a side effect profile we've reported, just as they've reported it with sunitinibid. So again, it may be a dose-dependent event. I was actually asking about thyroid and sunitinib. So you're seeing thyroid abnormalities with serafinib? Yeah, we have to replace with thyroid medication because we're creating some hypothyroid events. What do you think is going on there? Again, it may be the IL-2 thing where we're creating antibodies to the thyroid. 
Fascinating. Now, what about EGFR and renal cell? You're doing a trial looking at interference, unitinib, and erlotinib. What do we know about erlotinib? You need to find out who your intel is. <laughs> <laughs> that trial's not even known, I thought. <laughs> yeah, we're taking some data that we generated and SWOG has generated looking at a papillary population. It was our initial unmet medical need, different pathology makeup, and you saw some activity with Tarceva as a single agent in SWOG in papillary tumors. And there was some preclinical data suggesting C-Kit and EGFR were more overexpressed in papillary. So we ran with that and developed it in combination with interferon and initially ERISA, and then ERISA had the issue, so we substituted Tarceva. And we saw in pure papillary patients some significant responses that duration, we just submitted the paper to the American Journal of Clinical Oncology, on average was 11 months of control. So what we did was to further move forward, add in what we thought would be a next active agent in our papillary patient population, which was sunitinibid. There was some empirical data coming out that there were some responses in papillary patients with sunitinibid. So we wanted to add in that agent in a phase one, eventually phase two setting. We also expanded that study with a clear cell population. So we're looking at predominant papillary group, one patient variable, and a second group statistically our clear cell population. Can you kind of maybe talk a little bit about the non-clear cell variations of renal cell and how you approach systemic therapy right now off study? Off study. Well, the most common variation is going to be what we just spoke about, the papillary patient. Off study, that's a tough question, you know, because we do develop trials. So off study, how I generally approach it is a non-cytokine approach, and I look more at the chemotherapeutic data that's out there. That appears to be more of a chemotherapy-sensitive tumor than the clear cell population of patients. So if someone comes in with a predominant papillary it's not unreasonable to offer them the gemcitabine, capcitabine, or the adromycin gemcitabine that's been published by Midwest or East Coast groups, Chicago, New York groups. And I think that's a fair approach. Off study, we've seen some, again, empiric data when one looks at these phase threes, and you see that some papillary patients got on some of these phase threes when they've looked at the final pathologies. There's some data now with mTOR inhibitors suggesting sensitivity to torso and some activity. Sudanin, I mentioned, there's some data. Even Nexavar, there's actually some data now coming out in the ARCS program that there were some papillary patients responding. So I think all three of those drugs need the same investigations taking place in a papillary setting. We have meetings coming up looking at RAD and potentially developing a RAD trial specifically for papillary patients. So I think that's a field you're going to see these agents be explored now because it is an unmet need. Off study presently, I think chemo because there's data supporting it. Biologics like interferon and IL-2, you really don't see that in papillary patients. Chromophobes, again, not much data. I think it's very fair off study to try any of the agents we just mentioned, including chemotherapy, but you don't really see a lot of metastatic chromophobe patients. Unclassified with sarcomatoid elements, I clearly favor the adromycin gemcitabine approach or capcitabine approach. There's a neat protocol that I'm in favor of with bevacizumab in combination with chemo in this progressive clear cell or patient with sarcomatoid elements that's taking place. So I think those are sort of the areas where chemotherapy has a role. 
I want to chat a little bit about adjuvant therapy and trials in adjuvant therapy. And to begin, roughly what percent of patients are actually resected with the hope of cure with renal cell cancer? And how much do those patients contribute towards the overall pool of people dying of the disease so that if you make an intervention in that setting, how much of the mortality are you trying to attack? Right. You know, initially, if you look at it, about 30% to 40% of patients present with metastatic disease at the time of their kidney being removed. And then eventually, another 30%, and in some literature, as high as 50%, eventually have recurrent metastatic involvement. So if you just whittle down the percentage of patients, you're talking somewhere around a third to maybe less than a half of the patient population. Then if you look at the patient population from that standpoint, who's high risk? So you're going to take that, again, piece of the pie. You're not going to treat the low-risk patients, the small tumors, incidentally diagnosed grade 1 and grade 2s. So you're going to take the larger tumors or the grade 3s and grade 4s. So your population becomes truly 25%, you know, if one just looks at a pie. And then you've got to decide, is that population worth chasing when you don't have curative agents or complete response rate agents, you have good partial response rate or stability agents. And historically, if you look at other tumors that have developed adjuvant therapies that are standard of care, they're with drugs that actually have a complete response rate component. So I'm of the position that... Although I maybe would argue with you there in terms of breast... You don't see many complete responses to metastatic breast But you've got some pretty good activity with chemotherapy in an advanced yeah. setting. That's for sure, and you have hormone therapy right. now. Right, where and our drugs last for a period of, you know, eight months on average, five months on average, and they're developing resistance. And when they fail our drugs, they tend to be more exponentially growing than they were prior to starting the agents. Because whatever pathways start becoming more predominant, clearly you're feeding the tumor in a greater sense. And you don't see that in a majority, but you see that in a fair number of people. So what do we know right now in terms of Adjuvant. trials that yeah trials that have been reported? Well, we know the historical biologic trials with interferon IL-2, IL-2, combinations with vinblastine. There are six published manuscripts now all showing the observation arm being equal to the treated arm and high-dose IL-2 as well in that group. Then we have the heat shock protein peptide complex now called Oncophage that we initiated back in Anderson in the 90s late 90s when I was there, and had some early interesting data. If you follow the mouse models, it made sense to develop in the adjuvant setting, micrometastatic disease, where 90% of the mice weren't having cancer show up. And unfortunately, the data hasn't gotten approved because, again, many trial design issues and just not there. You know, the observation arm favored as well. So you now have a seventh trial adding to it. You have two trials presently going on in the United States and worldwide, well, United States won worldwide the CG250, the CA9 story there. But it's lacking recruitment in the United States. Can you talk about that agent? It's a monoclonal antibody initially developed in Germany against carbonic anhydrase 9, which is a tumor-associated antigen in kidney cancer, potentially a prognostic marker for interleukin-2 patients, high dose, and some extrapolate to low-dose IL-2 use, where it predicts for outcome on the cytokine. So there was some minimal activity, less than 10%, but similar to another monoclonal antibody we discussed earlier, VEGF, bevacizumab. So they moved it, rather than in the advanced setting, further into an adjuvant setting. And unfortunately, in the United States, having a difficult time with recruitment in that study. So I never even heard of that right, study. We 
you know, weren't interested in participating because, again, my bias was towards the observation. We knew other drugs were coming down the line. Maybe that's the feeling with other centers. But clearly, there's not a good recruitment in the United States. And that's been going on that trial literally two-plus years. Now you have the ECOG study looking at sunitinib, nexavar, and placebo. So you've got an adjuvant study, high-risk patients, predominant clarisol trial going on, exploring the agents that are recently gotten approved. And I think that's a very sensible trial. And it'll be interesting to see what occurs if we do truly delay the onset of metastatic disease. What do you think we're going to see? And you mentioned this issue of regrowth. And, you know, this is the first time I've really heard people verbalizing that kind of concern in the adjuvant setting, but it seems legitimate. What do you think we're going to see in these trials? I hope and pray that we see a delay in tumor recurrence. You know, one of the intriguing things as I've gotten involved in this field from the initial thalidomide roots to present now going over eight, nine years of targeted development is that one of these striking things is when patients fail, they don't always fail with new disease. They're failing at the established disease or they're failing at unusual sites now, more brain failures. You know? You're saying local recurrence? They're failing not necessarily where the kidney was, but they're failing where their disease is established, whether it's lung, right. liver, adrenal, pancreas. So their disease is growing through therapy, not necessarily new disease, making the suggestion that we are truly inhibiting the microscopic stuff from becoming macroscopic. We're not doing well with the gross disease. How do you know that, incidentally? Is that from laboratory work? No, your clinical impression. You're not seeing new disease on your patient failures. That's interesting. So, And has that actually been quantified or documented, or is it just an impression? We're looking at it now in all our trials with RAD, dose escalated, where patients fail. So we're actually going to put together a more than 150-patient manuscript looking at those prime targeted agents that we've established, the single-agent ones, dose escalated and our RAD, because we'll have over 160 patients on those trials. That's interesting. Now, has there been prior work where you've seen with other agents or natural history that, you know, you do see new sites as opposed to people progressing in the old sites? Well, cytokines, you know, historically you saw the new disease sites, the interferon, the IL-2, but that wasn't their mechanism. When a patient failed biology or immunology, they failed. Vaccines was the same way. The intrigue with targeted agents is... We always think that if we can treat the minimal tumor burden with these anti-VEGF, anti-PGF agents, we should be able to get ahead better. And I believe that statement. So I think it's something that we need to look at and other investigators should look at. Although I've heard people say that in terms of just anti-angiogenic strategies sort of globally, questioning actually whether it would work at a microscopic level where, you know, maybe the vascular tr- issues are different. It's not as mature mac- at this point. Absolutely. Fair statement, fair devil's advocate. And I have no rhetorical statement to make to that because it's a potential true statement. Now, getting back to the study itself, how do you think people are going to react to the issue of adjuvant therapy of either one of these TKIs? Some of these people are cured, you know, they're kind of wanting to get back to their life, et cetera. We're seeing this question coming up in all kinds of biologic adjuvant trials. But, you know, these drugs, as you mentioned, although they don't have life-threatening problems, are not too much fun to take. How do you think patients are going to respond to it? I think that's the issue with any adjuvant study, and your question is a fair question. It becomes the benefit of taking the agent, and we don't have proof that it's going to work, and historically we have proof that nothing has worked in this adjuvant setting with kidney. And there are toxic drugs that does impact their lifestyle. Fortunately, they're not life-threatening. You've got a healthy population of patients, so theoretically they shouldn't be life-threatening. They'll be life-altering for that period of time. So they're going to have to make the lifestyle adjustments 
to try to reduce the potential for tumor to come back. So I think it's a fair adjustment with an oral agent. It's not tying them up, coming to the physician's office. They can do it at home, make the more appropriate adjustments than coming into the office, getting an intravenous drug or an injectable agent. So I think there's some you know, merit to that. And I think it's a very good trial design, in fact, and hope they can accrue well. What's the time course of recurrence after having had surgery for RCC? And at what point, is there a sort of a disease-free survival interval that you can be pretty sure you're going to see survival benefit? I think if you look at the curves, you know, you go out to five years, five to 10% of patients with kidney cancer, high-grade tumors live, 5% of them are living to five years. So if you look at the recurrence rates and you've got people between 60 to 90% recurrence, the majority of them are going to recur within the first two years and then get involved in the clinical trials. So I think if you can start seeing patients in this high-risk setting get beyond that two years, you should start extrapolating that, you know, years three, four, and five, they likely are going to have a longer survival than historic. But that has to be proven. What's your take on sort of the long-time issue of removal of the primary in the face of metastatic disease, both clinically as well as biologically? Right. Good questions. It goes back to when I started in the 80s with kidney cancer. We always took out the primary prior to coming to a clinical trial. The reasons we rationalized were the primary doesn't respond to cytokine therapy. It tends to be the bulky site of disease, the symptomatic site of disease, and by removing it, we understand also the biology of the disease completely, the pathologic makeup of the tumor. I think all four of those points can be taken today on top of now looking at SWOG and European data where they had the trial randomized to interferon, nephrectomy and interferon versus interferon. Clearly, the nephrectomy arm was favored or did more favorable in progression-free interval and overall survival treated with what people believe now is an inferior agent being interferon. So I think the role of nephrectomy is clearly established as a debulking tool. If you look at some of the IL-2 historical papers, of which we're part of, they respond better with the kidney out. So I think if you look at some of the cytokine-based papers, there's clearly a role. Now, you're going to ask the question, what about the current drugs? And it's a fair question. There are studies going on right now that are looking at these drugs prior to surgery. The difficulty with some of these studies is timing of surgery and stopping the agents, wound healing, when you can restart the agents. So there's a lot of issues when it comes to inhibiting angiogenesis and then inhibiting you know, wound healing major surgeries. These studies need to be done, though, because it may change what we're presently recommending, which is a nephrectomy up front prior to starting therapy. We've heard a lot about wound healing issues with bevacizumab. What's your take on that, and what do we know about wound healing with the TKIs? We apply, in our setting, the same strategy we do with bevacizumab. We try to stop for a minimum of 14 days prior to a major surgery. We, in fact, have two integrated studies right now with our TKI program with either thoracic surgery or extrathoracic surgery in removing metastatic deposits after a durable response, okay? And we do the same thing with RAD as well, our mTOR program, where we ask the patient to stop drug for 14 days and not restart after surgery for a minimum of two weeks. So there's a four-week hiatus without medication going on at that time. What do you think the mechanism is in terms of wound healing? 
Well, clearly, it's got to be a VEGF mechanism. So it's one, two, three, clearly. How much the mTOR affects that is probably minimal, but it does block a VEGF pathway minimally. So you've got to respect that. So the mTOR inhibitors block VEGF also? Yeah, there's data with all three of the mTORs, the torsal, the RAD, and the AP2373, that there is some minor VEGF activity overlap. It's not quite the same, obviously, with a TKI, which is more of a potent VEGF inhibitor. Can you talk a little bit about how you use cytokines in your practice, and interleukin-2? In our setting, we use cytokines in two ways. We use cytokines in combinations with vaccine development, where we're now using cytokines from the traditional high-dose IL-2, interleukin-2, or higher doses of interferon, and using them in a more lower-dose subcutaneous fashion that can augment or stimulate the immune system in conjunction with vaccines being developed. So that's clinical trial research. And you reported some of that at ASCO last year. Yes, and we'll be reporting more coming up. The reports at ASCO were on the Trovax, which is the attenuated smallpox vaccine containing the tumor-associated antigen 5T4 and combinations with IL-2. And that report led to a phase three study going on right now in the international national settings of Trovax plus standard of care recognizing standard of care in the United States, SUTENT up front now in first line, where in some of the European studies or other countries overseas, it may be interferon still or IL-2. So that's led to adding a vaccine to standard of care to see if we can improve overall survival. So that's a large FDA trial going on right now based on our initial 15 months of data with the vaccine in combinations. Where I see high-dose IL-2 is, again, a predominant clear cell patient with good physiology, good performance status, and good prognostic patient. Potentially, one can define it even further as a lung-only patient. And if one has accessible the CA9 antibody or has access to it, if they're CA9 positive, my bias is they deserve an opportunity at what we know of as the only complete response rate therapy to date approved, which is hydrocyl 2 And if the person, I hear this kind of brought up in the context of a younger patient, very good condition, if they turn around and say to you, okay, what kind of numbers can you give me, particularly in terms of long-term disease control, what would you say? I would say that the data that's established right now with complete responses that is approved drug that you have access to would be Hydocyl 2. What kind of numbers would you give a patient? They have about a 3 to 5% opportunity to complete response. And you'll know within the first month of therapy if they're going to respond to HIDOSIL-2 or not. And then they still have the other options that were developed for cytokine failures, which is your targeted agents. So it's not that they're going to lose the targeted agents. They're available to them, but you're giving them an opportunity with a complete response.